We need to pray. Lord, we've been singing strong songs of the living Christ, that our Savior is alive. And so, Father, this morning we pray urgently that you would come alive in our lives and move our hearts and move our lifestyles to reflect the living Christ who lives in us. Our Father, we thank you so much for salvation, for a so great salvation that would bring us to a relationship with you that would be so intense, so real, that Christ himself would move into our lives. But Father, we urgently, urgently plead with you that you would cause our hearts to submit to your will, that you would cause our lives to reflect Christ's likeness, that you would come alive, Lord, fully alive, and live through us. Our lives may reflect the glory of the Lord who is alive, who was and is and is to come, our coming Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, the greatest troublemaker in any church setting is the tongue. I don't know if anybody looks like that in our church. Go ahead, say ah. <laughs> hey, you know what? Um, in just five brief chapters in the book of James, he has written about ten flavors that are served to billions on an ongoing basis. There's critical talk of God, there's talking too soon or too much. There's biased or prejudiced talk. There's all talk. There's badly prepared or false talk. Cursing talk. Inflammatory talk. Slanderous talk. Empty boasting talk. And grumbling talk. All wrapped up in five chapters of God's word. It's pretty obvious that this is a major theme and a major issue on the heart of God that James wanted to portray and present to us. It seems to me that, in fact, the sins of the tongue are the sins of choice of the saved. The dirty little secret of the church. I would suggest that there's probably more unrighteousness that begins and ends with what we say and how we talk than anything else in our lives. It's really the tongue that needs circumcision, it would seem. The power and effect of the tongue for good or bad is incalculable. But in truth, when you consider Christian wisdom, who has it and who does not, who needs it, controlling the tongue is one of the main measurements. In fact, I want you to think very much this morning about your own speech, what you've had to say this week, what you've talked, how you've talked to God, how you've talked in private about God or about people, how you've talked to people or how you've talked to people about people. The foremost sign of Christian wisdom and the exercise of wholehearted faith is demonstrated by how we speak. If you have that kind of faith that is consistently reigning in your speech, in your tongue, that faith will guide your whole body. From bad and toward good. 
Now, we've talked about some keys to this already, and this is not the last time we're going to talk about this in terms of James, because those 10 flavors that I shared with you, they're not all wrapped up in just this one section. They're throughout this whole book. We've talked about some keys already with respect to speech. We we have learned that um, it's a bad idea to speak too quickly. We should be slow to speak. We've already learned that we ought to do what the Word of God says, and we ought to say what we intend to do. But this morning in this section, which is a key section of James, is really key to practical, successful Christian living. We wouldn't think so, but it is. It starts by recognizing a main factor and source of sin in your life, at least the avenue of its expression. And that is what you say. In fact, not stumbling in speech is a measure of maturity of faith. That's what James is going to tell us in his word. The powerful first key outcome in keeping the whole body in good space. But that's what I have to say to you. Let's hear what God's word has to say. Would you turn with me to James chapter 3? It is important for us to know what we should think and to know what we should do about it. James chapter 3. Starting at verse 1, I'm going to read to verse 12. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone's never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships, for example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is, set, and is itself set on fire by hell. James, why don't you tell us what you really think about the tongue? Please don't hold anything back. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. It's been a while since I've studied the text that was this convicting. But this one, this one touches us all, I think. If we think about this one at all and we reflect on our own lives and this past week at all, I doubt many of us are going to escape unscathed this morning. But let me offer what I have to you from God's word and from the study of God's word in love. 
Because if this is as important as James makes it out to be, then we can't afford not to take this very seriously. There is an urgency here. I, I sense in James' letter, which is really, as I've shared with you, uh, among the earliest writings of Christian ethics, there is an urgency um, with James throughout all of his letter with respect to how we speak to each other, what we say to one another, and what that says about us. He is so exercised about us being authentic, having legitimate faith, being real, being really what we say, really having Christ in us, Christ's life living through us and what that would look like and how that would impact each other and how that would dynamically impact our community. So it's a big diagnosis and an accurate one. You're probably saying this morning, you know what, Rick, you're really, you're really off the edge this morning. You're exaggerating already. You're just overstating this issue. James was a pastor, and so am I. I, I can tell you that from Satan's perspective, just give me the tongues of your church, and I'll tie your church in knots, and I'll make it totally ineffective. Let's look a little closer here. I want you to see, I want you to look in your Bibles this morning. I want you to stare at your Bibles. I want you to see this. This is what God has written to you. I want you to notice this, this tongue. It's a small part, but it has big effects. It's not the size of the instrument, but the size of its effects that counts. That's what he's trying to, to establish here. And he gives a couple of little things with big impact. The first is a bit in a horse's mouth. It'll turn the whole horse. It'll, it'll make that horse run on the beach even though it probably doesn't want to. It'd rather be out in a field eating some grass. Showing my agricultural ignorance again, but, but forgive me. I don't know what that horse wants to do. Does it, that rider can, can take that with the bit, with the rain, make it jump over hurdles and do all kinds of things that it probably doesn't want to do. This great big horse, that little girl riding on the horse, making this big animal do what she wants it to do. Because of the little instrument in its mouth. And then he talks about rudders on ships. Not many of you know this, but I used to be a, um, a rower. You see the Olympics, you know, those, those skulls, those eight-man skulls? I used to be on one of those teams. No, I wasn't a rower. I was the coxswain. You know why? For no other reason than I was light as a feather. In fact, um, I, think, I think the, uh, the required weight on the boat, boy, that you, you, know, you put the guy at the back of the boat, who's actually, actually, I was actually steering the boat and commanding the, the stroke rate and all that kind of stuff. But, but the idea was you've got to get somebody really light back there and I think the required minimal weight was 112, and I got myself down to 116 pounds of sheer sinew. <laughs> but anyway, we're out in the Hamilton Harbor on a cold October Saturday afternoon, and the wind is blowing like crazy. And I don't know if you know about these boats, but they don't have a whole lot of depth you got to steer those babies into the waves because if you turn that thing sideways, you are going down. 
all 116 pounds of sinew is going to the bottom. A freezing cold day. The bottom line is, on those boats, with eight beefcakes and one sinew, you have what's called a tiller, which is about that big on the back of the boat. That steers the boat. And you either steer that thing into the waves or you steer it sideways and you're going down. Plus, you're going to lose the race, which you know I don't like losing. A very small thing has a very big impact. But what I want you to notice is it's not the bit and it's not the rudder. Notice what he says at the end of verse 4. Wherever the pilot wants it to go. It's about that girl steering the horse. It's about the person at the wheel of the rudder steering the boat. So, James wants very early to say to everybody, your tongue, although it's a major problem for you, it's not out there on its own. It's a small thing having a big effect, but you can't go around saying, hey, I'm sorry, it slipped, you know, like... I washed my tongue this morning, but I can't do anything with it. It's just out of control. No, no, no. It's being controlled by you. So what kind of action does your speech create? See, earlier, we've talked about all talk and no action. But James is talking here about the fact that there is action to speech. By what you think and then say your life and the life of others is shaped. A tongue under control can make your whole body wonderfully useful to God. To his higher desires and his goals. That's how the wisdom of God makes us useful or causes us to be useful. We become an agency of his glory. Through what we say. When we are relying on his wisdom and and wholehearted faith. But he says in verse 5... The tongue, although it's small part, makes great boasts. And by the way, he's making the point that they're not empty boasts. I am not overstating the fact by suggesting to you that probably everything you have and everything you are has pretty much happened because of something you've said. Will you? I will. Do you? I do. Can you? I can. What can you? I can do. And on and on it goes. You think about it. Virtually everything you have and everything you are is as a result of something you've said. So it makes great boasts that it can back up. That's his point. It really is the origin of all the action around you. And so there's a grave danger of of mixing worldly thinking and Christian wisdom and hoping that what comes out of your mouth is going to be healthy and helpful. It won't be. In fact, he says what comes out of our mouth is like a spark. That's what he says here. It's like a fire. You know, you say, if it was just a it was just a small offhanded comment. What? Just a small offhanded comment? A small offhanded statement can burn down a whole forest you had planted and nurtured and dreamed about. 
Not only what you've built, but what you hope to build in the future can all be gone in just an instant with one offhanded comment. You don't believe me? That's what he says here. What does it take to burn down a forest that took a thousand years to grow? It's just a spark. One little small spark, he says, verse 5. And not leaving it there, he calls the tongue a fire. He says, the tongue also is a fire. Not only is it a fire, it's a world of evil. You stack up description upon description. This is one of the most picturesque places of Scripture. All packed in, all of these pictures, word pictures, that James throws at us. You'll never forget these. You're... you're Tongue is like a a spark that'll burn down a whole forest. I love you. I hate you. You can burn someone's heart up or fire someone's heart up into a raging blaze by just what you say. Remember that old saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me? That's not true. Yes, sticks and stones will break your bones. And the nice thing about broken bones is they heal. But stuff that people says to you doesn't really heal that well. I've been pastoring long enough to be able to tell you that I spend lots of time trying to help people who've been told really nasty things. Interestingly, he um, makes the point here in the next picture of animals and creatures, birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea. He says they're all being tamed and have been tamed by man. In fact, it's fascinating because James actually takes right from Genesis 9-2 when the animals came out of the ark. He's using the exact phraseology of the various classes of animals. And and backing that up, back to Genesis chapter 1, we are told by God that the mandate that was given to mankind was that you would subdue and rule over creation, rule over the the birds and the reptiles and and the creatures of the sea. And James says, and by the way, we're doing a really good job of that. There are examples of us taming virtually everything in every classification of God's creation. And the reason that we were given the mandate to to rule over and subdue God's creation because we were to bring all of it on behalf of God to a place of glorifying Him. He says, you got this thing in your own body that isn't bringing glory to me. You're not subduing it. You're not bringing it under submission. And there's a triple trouncing that comes out of this text. Speech that spoils God's purpose for you relentlessly waits to empty its venom into image bearers of God. Notice what he says here. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by men, verse 7. But, verse 8, no man can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Do you see what he says here? He says, you, you, you got this problem in, in a triple way. You can't control your tongue. 
Your tongue is a restless evil. It's, it's filled with disorderly conduct. It's unstable. It's, the description here is like a directionless wave. And not only that, if that isn't bad enough that you can't control it, it's disorderly in disorderly conduct. It's filled with venom waiting to strike. The picture here is like a badly caged snake that is just waiting to bite whatever comes near it. That's his picture. That's his picture of Joe and Jane Christian. Don't let the snake distract you. Put your face on that snake. I think it's true that we are most likely to fail. If we're going to fail the Lord, we fail him right here. The things that we say. What comes out of our mouth. Tongue is most sinful. And by the way, we've invented all kinds of new ways to communicate with email and Facebook and Twitter and eBuddy and on and on it goes. Recklessly sending out stuff. He says, You come into church and you praise the Lord and Father, and that's great. And then you leave and you curse the guy who cut you off in the parking lot. That's a problem, he says. He says, the problem is you're praising and cursing out of the same mouth. And in so doing, you are actually cursing people made in God's likeness. There's a powerful piece of theology just there. Did you realize that when you make these offhanded comments, this nasty stuff to each other, you are dishonoring an image bearer of God? And it offends him. Just like it would offend you if someone said something rotten about your child. And when we dishonor people by ignoring the fact that they are bearers of God's image, we further give ourselves license to oppress them and further damage them. Because we demean people. We we actually view them as less valuable than they truly are. We stop thinking about them as being image bearers of God And we further dehumanize people. And James says, look, i got to be honest with you. That uh, in, in nature, fresh water and salt water, they don't come out of the same spring. But I see praise and cursing coming out of you. And so I'm asking myself, when I look at a spring of water, I'm saying, is it a spring of fresh water or is it... Is it salt water? Which is it? I don't know. And I don't know. I'm wondering about you. Praise and cursing. 
Your tongue will do what comes natural to it, is what he's basically saying. He's saying, look, look, at, the, look at the elements of life. Wickedness of speech is making you a part-time worshiper at best. Maybe you're really spiritually bipolar. You, you know, when you, when you live a life that is, is completely dichotomized, you live this way one time and you live this way another time, and you go to a psychologist, they will say, you know what, you have some... You have some emotional disorders. You have some mental disorders. James is saying, I- I've got to be honest with you. I think you've got some spiritual disorders going on. It's not health. See what he says about the fig tree bearing olives, or grapevine bearing figs. No, he says a fresh spring produces fresh water. And can't produce salt water unless you're a salt spring. And and a fig tree makes figs unless you're an olive tree. A a grapevine produces grapes unless you're a fig tree. Fresh water is desirable. Are you fresh water or are you undesirable? Are you a worshiper or are you not a worshiper? What's really in your heart is going to be produced... Out of your mouth. He got that from Jesus. Well, um, if we were to quit talking right now, it would be a very bad news day, wouldn't it? But I believe that he's filled us with some good news here about what we ought to do. Because that's, that's how we ought to think about things. That's, that's the truth about our speech, about our tongues. If we're honest, if we're honest... We know it's right. So now, what should we do about this? I think there are three takeaways that I want to share with you quickly as our conclusion this morning. Three action points. The first is this. In light of the seriousness of speech and words, not many of you should presume to be teachers. Neither be presumptuous about teaching or careless in choosing your teachers. You think you want to be a teacher of God's people? Think again. Not so fast. When James was, uh, was writing this back in um, the first century, uh, people, of course, were looking for an angle to be respected. And, and back in that time, if you were a teacher, it was a place of high respect. It still should be, but it isn't as much today. Certainly not being a teacher in a church. And so lots of people were clamoring to the idea that they wanted to be a teacher. Yes, sign me up. I want to be a teacher in church. I want to move up the social ladder of church. James says, hey, you need to know that uh, there are some inherent dangers with speaking. Speech is powerful. Not many of you should presume be teachers. Why not? This is no take it or leave it kind of proposition. Hey, give this thing a try or let's all take turns. That, that's not in, found in scripture. Due to the serious effects of bad teaching, false teaching, or bad living, and the cataclysmic effects on the, of, of failure on a community, James says, handle this with care. Now, he says, we all stumble in many ways. 
leaders too. But if speech is good, that means the resident power of the Holy Spirit to keep the whole body in check is operating on all cylinders. So his advice, I think, is this. Do not put yourself forward. Be recognized and sought after by the Holy Spirit. Your fallenness flaws your self-judgment. Now, Pastor Kelvin, I, I had to be careful of the first service to, for fear that you'd get a mass resignation. Don't be coming to Pastor Kelvin afterwards and say, I'm checking out a teaching. As Pastor Rick said, not many of you should presume to be teachers. Hey, Jesus Christ has given the gift of teaching. Some of you have it. You must exercise it. But you must understand the seriousness of the office of teaching. Words are very important. Words are are very powerful. Higher influence, higher responsibility. And by the way, he says, why? Because you will be judged more strictly. You handle the word of God, you better handle it well. You better study it. You better know what you're saying is true to the best of your ability and in prayer. Judgment on shoddy work is harsh. So I would say you should limit teaching to those proven to be mastering the scriptures and personally embracing their application. Because people are impressionable and they are easily led to stumble. Leader's speech becomes so much more critical because of this. You should be judged in terms of preaching or teaching on a couple of fronts. On humility. That you're a person of mercy and grace and forgiveness. On justice. That you're a person who judges rightly. Don't be presumptuous about teaching or careless in choosing who you listen to. Secondly, um, under the question, what should I consider carefully? That's the question, whom should I, to whom should I listen? But what, finally, what should I consider carefully? I, I want you to get this, and get this clearly from this text. Never underestimate the controlling power of speech. Never, ever underestimate it. Uh, notice in verse 5, he says, um, um, or, or sorry, verse 6 as he reads it, it sets the whole course of his life on fire. There's no way we, can, we, we should be allowed to understate this because James makes such an issue of this. What, what makes sin so deadly, such a killer, is that it reproduces. Nothing the tongue can't report on or initiate. There's, it, it can and it does interact with all wickedness. That's why he calls it a world of evil. Perverts your whole body, a bad tongue. And by the way, James is using a double entendre when he's talking body. He's talking about your own body and the body of Christ as well. The the broader body of the community. Of damaging the community itself. I believe that's why freedom of speech is curtailed in Canada. Because our government knows how powerful speech is. Wait a second. Yes, it is. It's curtailed. Freedom of speech is in the U.S., not in Canada. 
You can't just say anything you want to say. I can't actually go on the public airwaves and actually proclaim the truth without being taken off the airwaves. Maybe we should say there's no freedom of truth in this country. Because that's true. There is no freedom of truth. Action will always follow talk. Will it be good action or wicked action? That's the question in your life. As we're thinking about the corruption of speech and what speech does, consider the manipulative speech to preserve power in politics. Just pay attention to all the uh, posturing that goes on by politicians trying to get elected. The style today is not to demonstrate a positive platform about what I can bring to you, but rather to character assassinate those who are in opposition to you. You think words aren't powerful? You think damaging words aren't powerful? What about the power of misunderstanding? The ability of a misunderstanding to derail a friendship in your life, now and forever, or a marriage. Some of you here are living with that. A misunderstanding that is sour to friendship. You think words aren't powerful, even if they're misunderstood? Or maybe they weren't misunderstood. And what about the power of parents to imprint destruction in their children for a lifetime with belittling words? I face all kinds of people with that in their background. Do you realize, mom and dad, the power you have for good or for bad in your child's life? Do you realize how important it is for you to be the ultimate cheerleader in your kid's life? I got to give a shout out to my mother right now. I mean, she thinks I'm great. Other people know that's not true. But she doesn't seem to know that. And that's what a mother's supposed to be. Isn't it? I, I mean, I, I think I've accomplished things way beyond what I, what I should have accomplished. Yes, through the strength of God. And you give God all the glory. But I give all kinds of kudos to my mom. Who just always said that, hey, that's great what you did. That's really great. So many people are so crippled emotionally because of something their parents said to them that belittled them. Some of you know what I'm talking about. I don't know if you know this, but Winston Churchill had a couple of nasty parents. His father especially. Winston never lived up to his father's expectations. No matter what he did, I wonder if he, when he became the Prime Minister of England, if it was enough. When Winston graduated from uh, military academy, Sandhurst, he didn't get high enough marks to make it into the 60th Rifles, which was a, a crack regiment. And so his father wrote him a letter Here's an excerpt. 
Do not think I am going to take the trouble of writing to you long letters after every failure you commit and undergo. Now, by the way, he graduated and passed. I no longer attach the slightest weight to anything you may say about your own acquirements or exploits. If you cannot prevent yourself from leading the idle, useless, unprofitable life you have had during your school days and later months, you will become a mere social wastrel, one of the hundreds of the public school failures, and you will degenerate into a shabby, unhappy, and futile existence. If that is so, you have to bear all the blame for such misfortunes yourself. Really. And at the end of the letter, he writes this. Your mother sends her love. That's brutal parenting. Sticks and stones. Nothing compared to the damage of that letter. One final thing I want to leave with you. I don't know if you noticed while we were going through here, but in particular, verse 6 really grabbed me. A fire, a world of evil, corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. If I can leave you with one emotional, spiritual sensitivity to this text this morning, can it please be this? Do not take this lightly in your life, this speech thing. Is itself set on fire by hell? Not many times in the scriptures is any activity compared to hell. But speech is. In fact, 12 times, this is Gehenna, 12 times this word is used in the New Testament. It's the place, the interface of where the garbage dump was outside of Jerusalem and it was always on fire and it was a picture of hell. Jesus used it 11 times of the 12. James uses it here. Remember I said to you the small thing, the rudder, the bit, the tongue, all small, but they're not independently running the show. It's run by a pilot. I'm the pilot of my tongue. You're the pilot of your tongue. Make sure the source and the pilot issue of speech is rightly settled in your life. A wicked, uncontrolled tongue, listen to me, is a mission tool of choice of hell. That's what he's saying here. It is itself set on fire by hell. The corruption of hell corrupts your speech which corrupts your body and corrupts your whole life. And it's a vicious circle. You can allow your life by speech to become an agency of the pit of hell. That's what James is saying here. Your speech betrays to you first and to others your spiritual weakness and the foothold you have granted hell in your life. And he says really warmly to his people, my brothers, 
this, this can't be. This must not be. You can't live like this. You can't live with the insecurity of not knowing whether you belong to God or you don't. Do you belong to hell or do you belong to heaven? Are you living a life from the wisdom from above or from the garbage of hell? And I thought to myself about this past week and I thought, you know what? I was interfacing with hell way too often. There are church people, brothers and sisters, who have the scars of nasty stuff said to each other long, long ago that has separated friendships with a great canyon. And if left undone, And it is undone, church after church after church. We wonder why there isn't the spiritual power that that the early church experienced and the the coming to Christ in, in great numbers. We wonder why it's so hard in Durham region to reach people for Christ. Maybe the churches haven't fixed this. And maybe instead of hanging Calvary Baptist Church out front, we should be saying this is a mission post of hell. Don't come here until we get rid of the poison because you'll just get hurt. I'm just sharing what James is sharing. I don't believe that the issue is rampant here where we have deep, deep scars that have not been dealt with. Canyon-sized separation? I don't think so. But you alone know your heart and your situation. We roast each other. And in so doing, we set ourselves on fire, welcoming the flames of Gehenna. While self-control cannot manage the tongue, managing the tongue is a key to self-control and a life of doing right. The clear signs of God's wisdom and wholehearted faith that works. This, by the way, is to be continued. James isn't finished with this. We're going to go into it next week. There's more to this than what I've shared with you this morning, but this is an important start. How serious, my brothers? Let me just close by saying this to you that I read from another writer. Speech is a monitor of the state of spiritual health at any given moment. Ignoring little slips is like missing the first signs of cancer. That's pretty serious stuff. Lord, Help us to embrace the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in our lives with respect to what we say. 
to how we manage or don't manage our tongue. To how much of our lives have been given over to the Holy Spirit and how desperately in need we are of a fresh filling of the Spirit of God. Lord, please, please. May we not pass over this quickly, but may we, in fact, take a spiritual inventory of this past week. What came out of our mouths revealed a whole lot about our hearts. Was it all wisdom from above, Lord, and wholehearted faith, or was there stuff from hell? A salt spring and a fresh spring do not mix together. We're either fresh or we're not. So do your work in our lives, perfecting us, Lord. Perfecting us in faith that comes through love. I pray in Jesus' name. Before we continue singing this any further, I just feel this morning like there's maybe something that God is really doing here in our hearts, in our lives. And, and I, I just think that maybe as we're singing this together, if, if God is gripping your heart with a new conviction about what you really want to, God to do in your life, why don't you just come down here and, and let's gather here and we'll just pray when, we're, when this is all over. I, we need to ask the question, Lord, is my mouth a holy place? Or is it so desperately in need of a new and fresh work in, your, in, in, in my heart? So I, I just want to throw that out for you this morning. If God is really doing something and you want to, you mean business with God, you just come forward as, as we're singing together. I'm not going to embarrass anybody, but let's make this a place of prayer down here this morning. We'll pray for you and for me that God will do a fresh work in my life too. Father and our God, um, that is a prayer of our hearts Lord, you see these who have gathered before you this morning with a, a sense of profound work of the Spirit of God in their lives, Lord, and, and a desire to call out to you and to urgently ask you to, to take charge of our, of our speech, Lord. Take charge of our mouths. But the only way that that will happen is for you to take charge of our hearts, Lord. And we need a fresh work whereby you would simply fill us with your presence, Lord. May we be people who praise you and lift up others with mercy and kindness and forgiveness and grace. That we speak to one another with tenderheartedness. That we speak words that build one another up, Lord. That we love one another. That we praise God and praise men who are made in your image. May we reflect Christ in our lives, in our attitudes, in our speech. May what, what comes out of us be beautiful, Lord. Not horrible. Lord, I, I pray we renounce the works of Satan. We renounce the works of hell, Lord. We turn away from that. And we repent and turn to you, Lord. For you to do a good and a new work in our lives, O oh Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.